Hello, good people. This is Sister Julia Walsh, and you're listening to Messy Jesus Business. Welcome to The Mess. I'm here with Mary Novak, who is the Executive Director of Network Lobby for Catholic Social Justice, and also an associate member of the Congregation of St. Joseph. She's an organizer, an activist, a trauma-informed lawyer, educator, chaplain, and restorative justice practitioner, as well as a spiritual director, and a woman that I look up to for leadership in the Catholic Church here in the United States. Mary, welcome to Rusty Jesus Business. Julia, thank you. And I'm just really honored to be here in this conversation with you and happy to see you again. Yeah, it's great to see you too. This will be fun to reconnect. I have been thinking about how do we get this conversation started, right? Because there's so many different directions we can go. And definitely, I would like to hear more about you. I know that you actually didn't was it you quit college, you flunked out and or something, <laughs> and you were working in retail. You had a, a brother who was struggling with mental illness and then became part of the system, and that led you to become committed to educating yourself so you could help your family and eventually becoming a lawyer and an activist. That's a profound story, but I'd love to hear you talk about how that experience invited you to a place of courage and to service for others when you were in the midst of hardship? Wow, that's a a different take on the situation, Julia. Thank you for the question. Um, my older sister got tuberculosis when I was four. She and I were both born in Africa and The doctors believe that's where she contracted tuberculosis of the spine. Mm. And she had to fly um, to Texas and get a spinal replacement. And then she was in a hospital bed for about nine months healing. This is while my parents had four other children between the age of six and newborn. Mm. And at four, I kind of just leaned in and started helping my little hands could fit under her cast. And I have this image of there was always need around me that I saw that needed to be filled. And so it just became a a practice from a very early age that I learned how to respond to the needs of the world around me. Mm. And so by the time my brother Mark had what they called back then, you know, a nervous breakdown, right? Which was really late adolescent onsets of mental illness. It was just a natural response for me to say, okay, we don't have what we need. How do we go find it? Mm. And what am I to do in the midst of it? It was not an easy thing to respond to because it's the illness of somebody I'm very close to and I love dearly. And it was such a confusing time for my family. We didn't know really anything about mental illness the criminal legal system that he got involved in, much less the mental health system that he got involved in. That was also added to the suffering of walking with my brother in the midst of his illness. So it wasn't easy, but the question just came naturally. What are you to do in the midst of this? And that continues to be the question that I bring to every morning that I wake up. It sounds like 
in a way you found a mantra that became a guide for you in your discernment as you continue to think again and again how you're called to share your gifts and respond and and help others that vocation of helping yeah and thank god for the grace of god right <laughs> that kept showing up because i can't do everything but what got easier and easier over time is to learn what I could do and what I could not do. And that what I was called to ask others to, to join in, in the process. That is also learning how to grow up. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yes, it is indeed. And I was thinking too about to have experienced suffering in your family during times that were incredibly formative for you personally, it must have really shaped your identity and how you were able to process it and come to know that you had some sort of power in a situation that could feel very powerless. Absolutely. Absolutely. And over time, I learned to trust myself and that discernment, right? Mm -hmm. And the people around me, including my parents, really learned to trust me. And so I had the privilege then many years later to be with them as they journeyed towards their transition to eternal life. And they welcomed me into that space. Again, really hard, really hard. I mean, to lose your parents and to choose to be with them in the midst of it, that came easy. It was not a question that I would say yes to that when my mom called and said, we need you. It's been a graced journey, Julia, to have learned so early on how to respond to the world and to then know where I had to grow in my gifts and skills to be able to continue Mm. to serve. Mm. Because otherwise you burn yourself out or you, it becomes an unhealthy kind of process of always saying yes to everything that the world needs of you. You know this as a minister. And I got much better at it in theology and ministry school, right? <laughs> learning how to set boundaries and learning how to take care of myself in the midst of it as well. It's such a dance, isn't it, of give and take and constant listening and surrender and response and pivot. And, you know, we're constantly being flexible. I it was just in a conversation with someone this morning about a, a heavy and hard situation in my own life. And was grappling with the question of like, well, I don't know what's my job in this. I don't know what I'm meant to do. I don't know if I'm even supposed to do anything. I was being reminded that really I can only be responsible for myself. It's a hard thing when we're conscious of our oneness and how we actually are in a healthy interdependence, or at least that's the aim when we're living a committed life, a communal life. And other people's sufferings are our own sufferings. There isn't actually ways that we can isolate ourselves from that. And that is the CSJ charism, that all will be one. I think today that is the call of a courageous life is to continue to say yes, to show up, to be with those who are suffering, right? In any way, shape, or form, without trying to fix it, if that's not what our call is, right? Mm Mm-hmm. The flip side of that, I just had a brilliant conversation this morning with my colleague, Julia. Oh, another good, Julia. Good name. <laughs> we were talking about this really uh, intense discernment that 
they and I have been a part of over these months, what they said was, and this is about something we're doing at Network, being part of this discernment with this group of folks, it reminds us that we're not alone in this journey towards the beloved community, right? If we singularly stare at existential threats, like to our democracy or to climate, to our earth, Mm -hmm. if we look at those by ourselves, we can go spiral into desolation terribly, right? Mm -hmm. But if we are part of a discerning community about what our actions are to be in, in the face of these existential threats, there's something so buoying about suffering together with others and discerning together with others and realizing that I don't know everything, but you know a lot that I don't know. And I know a lot that you don't know, but together we bring all of our skills and gifts. It's in the midst of many women religious. And so we have the wisdom of the elders and then my young colleagues like Julia That's where the journey has landed me today. And I know those early formative years were critical to who I am today, if that makes any sense. Of course it does. I think what I'm hearing you explain is you learned through your relationship with your family and the suffering you were going through together, how only in the togetherness could you experience some sort of redemption or relief and transformation. It was not possible if you would have tried to solve it all alone or be the only one caring for your brother or your sister. That's right. That's right. Or my parents. Yeah, your parents. Yeah. I want to go back to one of the phrases that you just said, though, which is that it was a graced journey. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do you know when something is graced? Well, you rarely know it in the moment, (laughs) (laughs) especially when it, you know, when it involves suffering, when it involves the unknown. Mm -hmm. And if we're absolutely honest with ourselves, Mm -hmm. no one really knows what's going to happen tomorrow, right? But we think we know what's going to happen tomorrow. And there's there's comfort in thinking we know. Mm -hmm. That is an assumption that I want to build on. A graced journey, I think because of the way I started out, just as responding to the world and not having a career trajectory in mind, because that was not my family of origin. We were a working class Mm. family and my trajectory was to get married and have kids, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because that's what people did who were like me. And somehow the grace of God showed up And my journey was not that. My journey was to respond to the world. I kept saying yes. And sometimes it felt very alone because that's not what my high school friends did. And I eventually did go to college. Then I went to law school. Then I was a lawyer for a while. And all of my colleagues in the law firm were like, who is this weirdo who doesn't want to buy a house, buy the car and settle down and... I knew that I was not called to that, Mm -hmm. but that this was an important next step of the journey, right? It gave me the skills I needed, especially for what I'm doing today at Network. So what does it look like? It looks like not knowing what the future is and keeping 
in mind that if you just choose the next best step, the road will become clear, right? And that God will guide you. I'm Ignatian animated, as you know, and discernment is a big thing in Ignatian spirituality. And Ignatius was the master of discernment in the Catholic Christian tradition. So another way it was graced is I, at the right time, learned Ignatian discernment. So I'm now one of those people that trusts the process, both internally guided with constant conversation with my spiritual director, of course, but I trust a process with a group that is well formed to do discernment together. And so that's what Julia and I were reflecting on this morning. We were surrounded by board members and colleagues on staff. Many of them were sisters. They know how to do discernment together as a group and just what a profound circle that was for us to to be a part of. You're naming so much truth and you're naming the mystery of what God's guidance feels like and how it's like when you really truly say yes, then there's this openness, but it's also communal and collective and you can't, you can't do it privately. Unless you're called to be a hermit. Right. And then, you know, <laughs> which I was not. Yeah. So. Yeah. Very, very few people truly are. <laughs> yeah. Can I just go back? I'm curious about one part of your story. You said you were born in Africa and you're a working class family. So what were your parents doing for work or what was it that brought your family there? Yeah, my my father joined the military at 17. Mm -hmm. He joined the Air Force and was eventually stationed in Texas where he met my mother. And she was working as a secretary, I believe, or something like that. They married and he got stationed to Omaha, Nebraska, and then he got stationed to Morocco, Africa. Because he didn't have a college education, he was an enlisted man. He got to the highest rank of that, but then there's a certain point in the military, unless you have college degrees, you can't go farther. Mm. They changed the rules, and then he ultimately thought, well, now my wife has five children. I don't know if she has enough bandwidth to be an officer's wife, so I'll just stay here. And so he worked on... All I know is he worked on satellites in the Middle East. And I say that because he had a top secret clearance and he could never talk about what he did. And so then we moved back to Nebraska and then out to California, which is where I spent most of my time growing up. What a formative way to come into the world. And Well, and think about it, though, even as a very small child, I moved around. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it makes sense that just landing in one place was not what I was called to do with the rest of my life, Mm -hmm. right? And I think had I found women religious earlier in my life, I probably would have been a sister. Mm. I knew a sister when I was in in first grade in Omaha, Nebraska for one year. And she was fully habited with the bando and everything, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and this was right after Vatican II. So things were just starting to shift. And I didn't meet another sister again until I was in my late 30s and just returning to Catholicism. Mm -hmm. I met a post-Vatican II sister and I was like, wow, (laughs) (laughs) never knew people like you existed. (laughs) Wow, that must have been a really pivotal moment (laughs) considering what you're doing. It was actually, it was. (laughs) And she and I, I I still see her periodically today when I go up to Boston, so... Yeah. Yeah. Also, your childhood, as you describe it, you're learning about systems, the systems of military, the systems of government. 
the health systems or the lack thereof yeah. or the criminal legal systems, yeah. right? Yeah. And now here you are working at Network. I, I know your title is executive director, but I also know that you have a flat model of leadership there. So that doesn't mean that you're the boss. <laughs> Correct. <All right. laughs> I'm the facilitator in on, on my best days. There right? you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, and you're really working to confront systems of oppression and promote democracy, promote Catholic social teaching. And there obviously it's very complex. <laughs> so I wonder what is it like really to be working in DC as a lobbyist for Catholic social justice? You mean at this very moment? <laughs> because actually I it, it depends on what we're talking about right right i'm 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 intentionally asking it very open-ended so you can say whatever oh, i can should. fill it in i'm gonna back my way into your question julia with my answer because i think it's really important for me to put some context out there ever since i started working at network i'm in my third year right mm -hmm. i've been asked so many times if it's appropriate for people of faith to be involved in public life and politics. And then usually the rest of the sentence goes something like, especially in light of the separation of church and state. Oh, right? come on. Can I tell you that I hate that question? Because the answer I is know. like, yes. Duh. <laughs> yeah, right. But, but I, so that's the first thing. There's so many people who do not understand right. even the role of faith-based advocacy. So mm -hmm. I have to go on and talk about how the whole purpose of the separation of church and state is so that the church and state remain institutionally separated yeah. and neither the church or the state tries to perform each other's roles. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that they don't seek to influence each other, right? Well, especially the church and the state. And I have to go on and explain that the First Amendment to the constitution lays this out and that there's all these really complicated Supreme court cases, which I'm not going to bore you all with today, <laughs> my legal nerdness. Right. So I have to lay that out and just say, that's how the constitution and the U S government is set up. And then I have to explain that as Catholics, we are fundamentally called by our social teaching and our tradition to participate in society for the common good, for the well-being of all, and especially for those on the margins who are pressed there by our sinful structures, yes. and that this is embedded in our tradition. Right. And then they're like, oh, okay, I've maybe heard of that, because Catholic social teaching, as you know, Julia, is still, and I hate this phrase, but one of the best kept secrets in yeah. our tradition. <laughs> and so I run up against that all the time in this role. And then I have to explain that in 1971, the first World Synod of Bishops mm -hmm. came out with this brilliant document, Justice in the World, that actually said you have to get involved in politics if you're a Catholic. Mm. Like, that's what you're called to do. And quite literally, women religious the next year in the United States founded Network as a direct response to the call of the church. We're kind of like that. 
<laughs> I know. Which, of course, is why I'm so at home in this space, given the, the family experience growing up that we just talked about, right? Like yes. you respond to the world when it calls you. Exactly. So that's what we did, what you all did. Well, I wasn't here yet. My I know, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Women religious, quite literally the next year. Now, fast forward. Pope Francis in 2020 comes out with Fratelli Tutti, which I love that beautiful document. Um, chapter five is called The Better Kind of Politics. And in it, he says, politics for the common good is a sacred vocation and one of the highest forms of charity. Mm. Isn't that beautiful? What a blessing to you. I know. And so I I read it, I reread it when I first started at Network. And I was like, oh my God, had he studied the sisters who founded Network, who have been living the sacred vocation for 51 years? I don't know if he knows about Network, but I do know he beautifully described what Network has been doing for 51 years. Mm. For me, while I resisted it a bit, when I first got the call to consider this position, I have come to trust the discernment as I always do. And I know I'm called to be in this space at this moment, especially in light of all the different threads of my life that get woven together in this role that I have the privilege of serving in at this point. So that's how it is for me personally, to really feel like I'm continuing the vision of women religious in the United States and that I have the formation to be able to actually do that. Yeah. Right. You're actually glowing as you talk about it. <laughs> I'm so grateful for the question. And I, I really do feel honored, Julia. Now I want to answer the question in a slightly different way as well. Mm -hmm. And that is that our democracy right now is very fragile. Mm. Our U.S. democracy has been on a downward trajectory for 17 years based on experts in worldwide democracy studies. Mm. There's lots of reasons for it. A couple of things that I'll just mention, and then I'll bring it all together, right? So the first thing I'll say is that it was not really until 1965 that the U.S. really tried to be a multiracial, multi-faith, multi-ethnic, inclusive democracy. Because, mm. you know, we kept out Black folks from the beginning. So while we say in the United States that we're the oldest democracy, in the world, we actually only tried to be an inclusive democracy starting in 1965. So international democracy experts say that we are on par in our experiment of democracy with second wave post-colonial countries. And two more factors are at play here. We are in the midst of a massive demographic shift in the United States white people will no longer be the majority by 2040. And to get there, every place in the country is shifting demographically. So white folks are losing power, or they're seeing that they will lose it. Mm -hmm. No other major democracy in the world has navigated such a massive demographic shift. And it's got so many pieces to it that we could spend a whole nother session unpacking, right? Mm -hmm. Then, of course, in 2013, the Supreme Court removed Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which was a major protection so that states would not continue some of their 
racially biased practices of keeping people away from the voting booths. Mm -hmm. That's what was put in place in 1965. So in places like Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, Texas, and Virginia, they had some pretty terrible practices of keeping black and brown folks away from the voting booths. So that was put in place in 1965. And in 2013, the Supreme Court said, we don't need it. Within 24 hours of that Supreme Court decision, states started moving. Texas announced a strict voting ID law. They started voter purges for failure to vote in the last election. They started voter roll cleanups, just if you moved across town, right? And this happened in all of the states I named and more. Mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing is as these forces are working together, we are really in a state of crisis. And there's a rise in authoritarian rulers across the world. And we know the damage the former president did in his prior four years. And he is at present the front runner for next year's election, which could be one of the most consequential elections in my lifetime and definitely in yours, right? So what is it like to be in the middle of Washington at this moment? If you look at what I just went through, it is tension filling to to say the least, right? It is stressful. A lot of my work is keeping people just grounded because they're panicked about next year. And look at how long it took us to get a speaker. We still don't have a budget. Last night, they voted to kick the can down the road one more time, which is adding another level of instability to our politics, to our democracy. All of that said, being part of a community that was not only founded by women religious in their depth of wisdom, but who still are integrally part of this organization and the network community feels like exactly the right place for me to be because I can't do this alone. And as I reflected on earlier about the discernment process that Julia and I have just been through, we're looking at next year and hard choices and to surround ourselves by the wisdom of women religious and others who are called to be in their midst at this moment. It's just a privileged space. And I think showing up in Washington at this moment, it's a discernment of spirits that we're in the midst of. Like you can't just use pros and cons, weighing and balancing to make <laughs> you know choices right now. It is really multi-level discernment, head, heart, spirit. Yeah. And this is what we're in the midst of doing at network. And mm. I have to say, I, I would not want to be anywhere else if I was doing this work than at Network mm. in this kind of beautiful constellation, which is not easy. <laughs> like I do go to bed exhausted almost every night, Yeah, but at the same time feeling quite privileged. I think what you're talking about there is paradoxically describing the Paschal mystery in a way, you know, you're at the cross and there's resurrection. It's like the both andness of what it means to be a Christian. Like we are in the places of, of tension, confusion, real messiness and suffering and chaos. And we're there in a spirit of love and hope. And we experience 
a sense of meaning and purpose and joy because we know that we're doing what God is calling us to do. Exactly. I wish that there was a way you could just simply say to us, like, you know, Julia, this is the solution. <laughs> like, I've named all the crisis, and here's the answer to the crisis of democracy, and we are selling it tomorrow. <laughs> but obviously, it's not that. I mean, if we were in authoritarian rule, right? Yes, somebody could say, here's what we're going to do, and everybody would follow along. But this is the gift mm-hmm. of being a democracy is that it is a process and you have to stay in it. And it's a long haul process Oof. of leaning in, right? Yeah. Not unlike being in a women's religious community either. You know that. Yeah. It's not dissimilar. Yeah. Yeah. There's something here that I'm very curious about, which is democracy has a majority rule model. The stripping of voting rights is impairing people from actually participating. So that system seems like it's breaking down. I personally tend to distrust institutions that are hierarchical in structure. And when I think about my basic civics class back in high school or junior high, it was like, oh, that's what I hear in the checks and balances somewhat is a hierarchical system. So is part of the work of this time in history that we're in to be imagining new systems and structures and building them while we're also like protecting and preserving what's of value that we've already created? Boy, that's a a beautiful question. And the short answer is yes. And, and this is the conversation network has with organizations like LCWR all the time, who is in the midst of the transformational justice work. Leadership Council of Women Religious, which is representing thousands of Catholic sisters here in the United States, but not all of us. Right. And it's their leaders, yeah. you know, who are part of the Leadership Conference of Women Religious. You know, they're really discerning the kind of new direction, the, the new systems and structures. And of course, we are too. But our call has been to be in the midst of the current one, because that is what is operative for the millions and millions of people in the United States today. You cannot not attend to that. So that is what network focuses on. And I want to push back a little bit on the early part of your question, Julia. Great. I love that. Please do. Good. (laughs) And because we're friends and you do it with a smile, I, I know it's okay. Voting is still incredibly important. And I think the realization that what the media has done is convey to U.S. citizens that the democracy is not worth fighting for. And so we're afraid people are not going to show up to vote. Now, voting alone will not save our democracy necessarily, but it is an important next step especially next year. And in places where gerrymandering and keeping people from the polls, all that stuff is happening, people are showing up and doing concerted effort to get people to vote early, Mm -hmm. to make sure that the voting places are well protected by unarmed people so that all of us feel safe going to vote. Because we know of three years ago, There were places throughout the country where people with 
guns were outside the polling places, which was not restricted. So there's so many things happening and groups and organizations and people are showing up in really important ways. Are the structures not there yet? Absolutely. And it's every day I see a new court case that is struggling on this district boundary in this state for you know, who has the right to vote in that district. This is how evolution happens. Mm. It's messy, really messy. And I know that that's an important word for this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, well, way to be on brand. (laughs) Right. I mean, if we're still young in this democracy experiment, it would make sense that this is a messy time, especially in the midst of this demographic shift. And so... Instead of saying it's not worth it to participate because it's too messy, it's actually important to lean in and say it's messy because we're in the process of evolution, right? And I want to get to hierarchical versus our structure of government. We actually have three branches of government Mm -hmm. that were set up to be the checks and balances, exactly as you said. It's hierarchical, yes, and there's lots of critique we can do of that but at its best it actually works well Mm. or at least it's holding and that's what i say to my friends back in california where i spent lots of time you know our democracy held it was questionable for a few minutes on january 6th but it held we've just come out of a summer of accountability Mm. all of the folks in january 6th who were arrested have gone through trials So many of those folks have been held accountable for what they did. Our former president is being held accountable. The folks who surrounded him are being held accountable. In an authoritarian ruled country, that would not happen. So there are signs of hope in the midst of this. And yes, there could be a better form of our three branches of government. Right now, it's the best we got, and we need to strengthen it Uh before we start rearranging it. Uh Like, you don't want to take a fragile chair and start sitting on it and trying a different function, (laughs) right? You want to strengthen that chair first before you start playing around with it. Yeah, yeah. And we're all flawed individuals. I think here's a fun story I'd love to share with you that just came to mind. I had the privilege of working with the Leadership Conference of Women Religious in the midst of the mandate that was imposed by the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith. Mm -hmm. And I worked uh, with LCWR during that conflict. I remember in the early days going to see my spiritual director and I said, the Vatican, you know, they came down on the sisters on LCWR and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And he, he, I just like your voice there. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) He was a Jesuit and he had worked at the Gregorian, the Jesuit school in Rome. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he said, Mary, the Vatican is like Washington, D.C. From far away, it looks like one thing that's doing some orchestrated action. But as you know from being in D.C., there's all these disparate parts. There's no coordination. It's a surprise when it actually works, right? (laughs) And I had been in D.C. long enough to know that. Uh And he said, that's what the Vatican is like as well. Mm. So, yeah, this office may not be in sync with that office. And so you can't lump them all together Mm. as one big thing. And in doing that, You don't understand the complexity of the system, and you also don't understand how to change it. Mm. 
that's the other part of my pushing back is that we all need structures mm. for us to flourish. And our democracy needs a structure. And maybe there's a better way to put our democracy together. But the problem right now is convincing people that there are parts that are really working still. We got the continuing resolution last night. Now, it's sad that they're kicking the can down the road one more time. But I saw, you know, one of the members of Congress last night when I went to a gathering over at Georgetown to talk about the closing of the Jesuit University in Nicaragua that happened earlier this year when that government shut it down, that authoritarian government shut it down. And the member of Congress said, you know what? It's still working, Mayor. You know, we might come to blows soon, but it's still working. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a messy system, this democracy we're a part of. And I'm willing to be part of that mess. And Network's sisters who founded us were willing to be part of that mess too. I think it was a lot less messy back then, but I choose to believe, and it's a choice, that this is an evolutionary moment. Mm. And you know, as a woman religious, that that is what our spirituality and our theology is telling us right now. I studied under Ilya Delio at Washington Theological Union. I know we're in the midst of an evolutionary moment. How do we keep showing up? And how do we surround ourselves with community in a way to keep showing up? Mm. What you're talking about really is fidelity. Exactly. In the midst exactly. of the mess. Yeah. And we've explored the mess throughout this whole conversation I've heard about discernment. I've heard about your spirituality. I haven't heard much about like, what does it mean to be a discipleship for you in the midst of all this? It's not a necessarily Catholic word that much. Mm -hmm. um, that discipleship, I hear it a lot from my Protestant colleagues on Capitol Hill. And they use faithful discipleship and we use faithful citizenship, right, mm -hmm. in our documents. But for me personally, discipleship means always listening and always being open to learning because that's what the disciples did. They listened to Jesus and they kept learning. Mm. And a lot of that time they were perplexed, as <laughs> am I. <laughs> right. <laughs> but as we've talked about, I don't know how else to be in this mess unless I continue to listen and continue to learn. Mm. Well, maybe that's where we can rest our conversation until next time we get to have a chat. <laughs> the time has really flown and it's been a joy to be in conversation with you today. And there's a lot more depth that we could explore. I look forward to that, Julia. How would you like to invite our listeners to support Network and its mission? Oh, there's so many ways, but I'll start with just a couple. If they don't know about Network, I would just invite them to go to our website and contact any of us and get an introduction to this extraordinary political ministry that women religious in the United States founded in 1972. The website address is? Networklobby.org. All right. Thank you. There you go. It's pretty easy. And I'm Mary Novak. So just go on the info at and get an email to me. Yeah. Um, you can become a member of Network for a, as low as $20 if you're a low-income person, a student, a senior citizen, $50 for people who make more. And what that $50 does is it builds the base, right? Mm -hmm. And we keep you informed about what's going on on Capitol Hill so that you can participate because 
democracy is about participating. And we keep you posted when we have votes coming up for certain legislation. I can talk about legislation all day and I would be excited to come back and do that. Um, There's some extraordinary legislation that if we had a working Congress could actually get through that both Republicans and Democrats would vote for Mm. an expanded child tax credit right now that we've got folks everywhere who want to support it. We just don't have a working house of representatives right Mm. now. So when that condition comes, we would immediately send out an email and say, call your member of Congress and we'll teach you how to become an advocate. So we have trainings so that you, you can learn how to advocate for this legislation. We'll train you on how to set up a lobby visit and go meet your member of Congress. We'll accompany you on that visit. Mm. If you are in one of the states where we have a team, we can invite you to join one of our teams. Mm. And that's how you participate in this messiness surrounded by a community. Um, Network has close to 100,000 members and supporters and the Women Religious started something that has turned into a real movement. And so I'd love for your listeners to join. Yeah, thanks. And I'm aware that you also do a lot of education about things like white supremacy and voting and uh, even how to talk to people who are different than us, right? And to build Absolutely. relationships across the polarities and divisions of we do. our time. So we have workshops, absolutely, that we make available to individuals and groups, but we like to do groups. We also do online education. So on our website for free is the program you just mentioned. We've done three sessions now of white supremacy and American Christianity. Mm. And it's a conversation between our beloved Father Brian Massengale, who's a professor at Fordham University, who's also a diocesan priest from Wisconsin, with Dr. Robert P. Jones, who's the head and founder of Public Religion Research Institute. And he's a sociologist and Brian's a theologian, but really the most important voice about anti-Black racism in the U.S. Catholic Church. And, you know, in the midst of this crisis of our democracy, we've got this movement of white Christian nationalism, which is not a surprising movement in light of our unhealed original sin of slavery and the changing around of the laws and the systems that allow that unhealed racism to still be operative. Mm. So we have those programs online that we'd love people to participate in. Brian and Robbie did our last um, program on October 21st, just last month. Over 1,900 people signed up for that program, Julian. So it's feeding a need that people have Mm. and watch it, share it, keep learning. Yeah. So that you can be with us as part of this messiness called democracy. Yeah, a discipleship of democracy, even. <laughs> oh. Exactly. Oh, I love that. I love that, Julia. We listen and learn together. Oh, Mary, thank you so much for coming on Messy Jesus Business. It's been my absolute pleasure, and it's so good to see you again. Yeah. Messy Jesus Business is produced and edited by Colin Wamscans. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. 
Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.